Welcome to our podcast. My name is Keely Severson, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alicia Swamy and Eric Johnson, and we are Exposing Mold. Today, our special guests are Sean and Caleb. Toxic Mold Support Australia is an informal support group that began life on Facebook by Jason in October 2013. Their mission is to raise awareness throughout Australia and New Zealand of Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, or SIRS, aka mold illness, as well as other biotoxin illnesses, and to provide support to patients. Caleb Rudd, a Facebook group administrator and website editor for the group, joined in late 2014. He developed myelagic encephalitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, MECFS, while working in London in 2000 after a flu-like illness while living in a damp apartment. With increasing symptoms of chronic fatigue, post-desertional malaise, insomnia, brain fog, and flu-like symptoms, he returned to Australia and embarked on a journey which saw him consulting with dozens of health practitioners, thousands of tests, and hundreds of different therapies, both mainstream and non-mainstream. He was finally diagnosed with SIRS in early 2015 and embarked on the Shoemaker Protocol shortly after. He encountered the work with Dr. Richie Shoemaker when a friend had lent him Mold Warriors in 2006. But as no testing was available then, he was unable to interest any doctor in the protocol. He believes that his exposure to mold and SIRS triggered or was a factor in developing MECFS, but despite mold avoidance and going through the Schumacher protocol and many other protocols, he remains significantly disabled with MECFS. However, he does need to avoid exposure to mold and water damage buildings as much as possible. Sean Delizio is the Facebook group moderator, research, and website contributor for the group. He joined in August of 2019. After his own experience of struggling to find medical help, he wrote a brief scholarly review to help potential SIRS patients receive proper testing and referrals, and this eventually morphed into a number of related projects. He worked with Dr. Cheryl Harding of CUNY with some assistance also from Sharon Noonan-Kramer and Eric Johnson to write a section on Wikipedia detailing the science on how mold and other biotoxins can cause innate immune activation. Recently, he has worked as the lead author with Caleb on SIRS Explained and their Science Primer, both of which they direct any SIRS patients and their support network to. Despite the negative effects of this illness upon his life, he can count himself lucky to have met so many other wonderful patients, advocates, doctors, and researchers as a result. Sean and Caleb, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. What do we have the pleasure to owe this conversation? So I'd love to just learn about both of your roles in the mold industry. I'm uh, an admin of uh, Toxic Mold Support Australia. Been admin since for nearly eight eight years. Yeah, nearly eight years. Um, so I joined the group because um, I first discovered a red uh, surviving mold in 2006. Um, I have MECFS, and I did the VCS test and failed it. But um, there was no other testing available. So, you know, it kind of went to a dead end. And then in 2014, I read that there was testing available in Australia for the Shoemaker panel, and I redid the VCS and still failed it. So um, I sort of was got interested in, in Shoemaker's work again and found the group that had started one year prior. And, yeah, and so since then I did the website and sort of I worked for some organisations like ICI, and uh, I work with Dr. Sandeep Gupta. And yeah, and now there's a biotoxin committee that is starting, a government committee starting next week um, to develop guidelines for general practitioners. And also there's a targeted call for research into biotoxin illness also, which is uh, up to a $2 million Australian grant for sort of biomedical research into SIRS and biotoxin illness. So that's happening as well. And my background's quite similar in terms of coming to it as a patient as well. So I was diagnosed with SIRS in 2019 following a roof leak. And basically, I started to get involved with the support group with Caleb, Toxic Mold Support Australia. I had the advantage of 
being based at a university doing a PhD and so I had access to the academic literature and um, we started sort of working together to produce uh, some of the material that you actually find on the website there and I guess it's just sort of been one of these situations where yeah it's um, more and more opportunities sort of seem to be coming along to sort of get involved so right now there's sort of talks as well as, as to the possibility of even uh, the first patient-led study in Australia uh, happening in the future and yeah. Perfect. Now, Caleb, you were talking about how you guys actually are going to research this. Did your organization get a $2 million grant? Maybe you can just talk a little bit more yeah, about that. Sure. No, I mean, Toxic Mold Support Australia is um, a volunteer organization, basically a Facebook group and a website. What is happening is, so the, the government gives out grants for targeted areas of research. So through a researcher at Macquarie University, Professor Giles Yulmen, he and there's another group called PANDIS, P-A-N-D-I-S. They're going to apply for the, the, the grant. Um, you know, it has to, be a, has to be a major university or other research institution to get the grant. So through them, I think Sean and myself are going to help with the grant writing. I think it'll look up biomarkers. It's, um, there's a lot of experts on board. Dr. Shoemaker has been approached and is, is willing to um, help. So there's a lot of experts. So the grant application is out there. So we'll be applying for the grant. So probably end of the year, start of next year, we'll find out if the grant's been successful. And then it'll be some years before the publications come out. But um, there is some things in place already that the researchers have started doing. They've done some preliminary test, biomarker testing as well. Wonderful. And you said Dr. Shoemaker is joining you guys. You do know that he's saying <laughs> mold is not the cause of SIRS. It's only about 7% and it's a tenomycetes. That worries me a little bit that um, if he is going to help you on your research, I don't know if that, that might sway He's not going to be a primary investigator, or, or, so he's just going to be one of the experts that um, is on board. And I guess I think we, we'll, they'll be looking at transcriptomics, but they'll be also be looking at mycotoxin testing. So it's going to be fairly broad in the, the biomarkers. Great. Awesome. What is the goal exactly of the research? So you're going to do this research to give it to the Australian government to all right, recognize this as an issue so doctors can start treating people? Well, it might be worth going back and sort of um, telling a little of the history here of how that sort of $2 million of funding came about, I guess. And you actually have to go back really to about 2015. And uh, one of our federal members of parliament, the Honourable Lucy Wicks, um, a tree basically fell on the roof of her home and she subsequently got very, very sick. And she went through basically many, many doctors trying to find an answer. And eventually her mother said, actually, you need to be looking into mold. And she was given a diagnosis of SIRS and kind of realized that uh, in Australia, just like the US, just like uh, so many countries, this is a very poorly recognized illness. You know, it's, there's a lot of pushback from the medical community about this illness as well. Uh, and she wound up kicking up a bit of a fuss about it and that led in 2018 to a federal inquiry into biotoxin related illnesses and so that heard basically that had input from medical experts other professionals patients as well as our department of health and and our royal australian college of physicians and the like and it was sort of it was a mix really it kicked off a lot of events the uh, chief medical officer of the country at the time basically said we recognize that sort of these people with these sort of SERS-like conditions, that they are genuinely physically ill and that we've probably acted very poorly in the past because we've just said, oh, no, it's psychosomatic. We do recognize they're genuinely physically ill. However, we do not think there is enough evidence to say that it's actually dampness and mold causing their illness. And they even said some things like, well, we also think that there's really only a small amount of evidence, mainly coming from one research team in the US, and that they were basically referring to the Shoemaker team. Uh, regardless, the committee that sort of oversaw that inquiry 
basically handed down a number of recommendations that the Australian government is now has to sort of respond to and, and follow out. And that's, what's, that's what you're sort of hearing about now in terms of this $2 million of funding and the like. So part of this that's going on is Department of Health is going to be conducting a full literature review on the topic. So when the Chief Medical Officer actually stood up and sort of made those comments that were a little bit dismissive, they, we, we actually know from a freedom of, freedom of information request that they had not actually conducted a literature review before making those comments. And then we have uh, the Australian Government's National Health and Medical Research Council. And so these are the, this is the primary sort of health and medical funding council of Australia. And they actually produced an initial consultation paper on this, and they actually did uh, basically a sort of small uh, an initial literature review on this topic. And they actually rebutted the Department of Health and said, uh, contrary to what was heard at the biotoxin inquiry, there is a growing body of evidence for this illness and cited a whole bunch of studies around that. And that was very, very promising indeed. That's probably the first government report we sort of really know of that has at least said, right, there is evidence this illness is real and there is evidence that it's actually being caused by dampness and mould. Um, so that's, that's progress, really. So from that comes this targeted call for research, $2 million of funding that now academics around the country can apply for to do further research into this. Uh, there's a few other initiatives that sort of come around it as well. Department of Health has a few other recommendations that they have to respond to, such as sort of putting out uh, information to the public about this topic, which they haven't done yet. Caleb, I think you know some of the other recommendations better than me. So what would they be? Well, the I'll just... Um give you the, so the tar the target of call for research i'll just give you their objectives uh, i put it in the chat but um yeah. so the three main objectives develop a scientifically valid evidence-based understanding of pathophysiology and etiology of SIRS and other biotoxin-related illnesses, establish a case definition for SIRS and other biotoxin-related illnesses that will guide testing and diagnosis, including the identification of potential biomarkers, and develop an evidence base that will underpin treatment and management strategies. So that's the main thing. But it's really interesting. One thing it will not support is research into the prevalence of dampness and mould in the built environment. So it's more strictly biomedical. It sounds grant. like it's more aimed at investigating SIRS and less aimed at investigating mold specifically. And the reason that's concerning is Shoemaker has actually made a pivot from connecting SIRS to endotoxins. So I would hate to see this move in a direction where all this research is basically proving SIRS is not mold illness. That would be an awful direction for this to go. They are using the term SIRS and biotoxin-related illnesses, which is yeah. what was used in the, the government inquiry. But Did you see um, the I, I, summit that where Shoemaker spoke recently, like last week, where he was kind of indicating, well, flat out saying that the genetic failures from his profile were actually activated by endotoxins, actinomycetes, and not. Still saying there's about a 10% mycotoxin component. Um, but I would say most of the research in the area is still on mold. So one of the things, the literature review will, will find mostly mold centric uh, research. That's been part of the pushback and the sort of differentiation you have to make around where the evidence is at right now. So uh, when people talk about SIRS, that's a particular syndrome for identifying and diagnosing individuals, whereas in general, you know, and there's only a sort of limited amount of research about that, and so we do see a lot of pushback from the medical community about that. In general, you can sort of uh, pull back from there to the broader lens, which is what is the evidence that dampness and mold cause innate immune activation? And that includes a much broader body of evidence. That's not just SIRS, but that's all those other researchers who have specifically looked into mold and Stachybotrys and the like as well. And right now, the sort of you know, having sort of talked to some of the other researchers in this space, like uh, Dr. Cheryl Harding and the like, you know, their position is that the evidence for that, that general causation, is actually growing reasonably strong now. Um, and so that's where we sort of have to direct this, this biotoxin illness uh, advisory committee and the like, and direct this literature review to sort of recognising that, because if you can just push to where that evidence is at now, uh, in recognising that, yes, uh, these people are genuinely ill and, yes, it's being caused by dampness and mould. I, I think, yes, Shoemaker is, is you know, he's, he's, yes, he's pointing, saying, oh, I think it's endotoxins and actinomycetes. Um, 
He's one researcher out of many. We really have to see what others come along and say about that. It's true that there is an existing body of literature around endotoxins causing neurodegeneration, but we haven't really seen those two bodies of literature, the dampness of mold and that endotoxin causing neurodegeneration really linked together in a compelling way yet, I'd say. From them saying they don't want to look into the built environment, um, I'm not sure how much. I think the research, the research that pandas will be doing will, I mean, I'm not sure what they can include, but I mean, they were, I mean, they are thinking about, yeah, like um, the built environment and testing for the built environment. I'm not sure how much the, um, they'll be able to do with that, with, with this grant specifications. But I mean, that's half the, you know, that's 50% of the, the issue is the, is, is the building. So you can't really have one without the other. But I was just going to say that uh, Dr. Shoemaker's change in position has put everybody in a very interesting position. Because from 2001, with his first book uh, on the subject Desperation Medicine, up until uh, actually the art and science of SIRS, he's pretty much been uh, leaning towards connecting his paradigm SIRS with toxic mold exposure yeah. and chronic fatigue syndrome. And yet he uh, has turned around and now stated that he wants to separate chronic fatigue syndrome from SIRS, which... Um, Combining this with his change in focus to actinomycetes and subtraction of that on toxic mold, it uh, creates a scenario where if you were diagnosed with SIRS under the we think it's mold era, now the very same term is uh, probably not mold. How can that fail to create confusion? Uh, I think you're right in some ways. I think the way I see it is it's... From your perspective, you'd like to say, okay, right, you know, A, there's, there's a lot of compelling evidence outside of Shoemaker around Stachybotrys, and, and B, there was several studies early on in the CFS story linking, uh, linking mold, particularly Stachybotrys, to CFS. And it's not as if well, we don't recognise you know, constantly that we see this overlap between the SERS community and the ME-CFS community and even perhaps a few other patient communities too. I think... Given how it played out here with the biotoxin inquiry and the language that has been, you know, biotoxin related or uh, the words that the, the government uses here is they, they never really quite say SIRS, they actually say SIRS-like syndromes, is that what we're going to see is however this plays forward, it'll probably be recognising those people who just at first, just under that general banner as we were saying before about dampness and mold, recognising that they are getting ill from that, and that means it's possible that we'll see this play out where you're going to see a reclassification of a certain amount of the MECFS community reclassified as sort of SIRS, if you like. We don't know how that's going to play out. That's a possibility. And yeah, that's problematic because it means that the original MECFS community might be the patients remaining whose illness isn't perhaps driven by, by dampness and mold. I still think there's an element there where we can, we can get focused too much on Shoemaker because he was the originator of SIRS. But as I'd say before, I think we're still waiting to, to see how other researchers follow up on, on his transcriptomics test, suggesting that it is endotoxins and actinomycetes and the like. I don't know. Caleb, you got thoughts on this? Um, well, Shell Harding had a lovely paper last year um, that showed innate immune activation in an animal model with uh, spores from stachybotrys and denatured um, spores, so without the the toxin, so just uh, fungal fragments um, causing similar neuroinflammation and um, cognitive and behavioural issues in mice. So that's a nice cause and effect model. The researchers in Finland uh, are using dampness and mould hypersensitivity syndrome. So they're, you know, quite mould. That's, that's also the terminology the World Health Organization used in their 2009 review, this, this dampness and mould banner. And they recognised even then that there were probably multiple elements to it, synergistic elements that we sort of don't understand in terms of perhaps interaction between different uh, inflammagens, whether mycotoxins or even just the fungal fragments themselves or even other components in a water damage building and that we haven't actually understood those synergistic elements yet. And I don't think Shoemaker's research has, has elucidated that yet either. But sorry, I'll throw it back to you, Caleb. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, beta-glucans, mannans, um, endotoxins, exotoxins. I mean, I think with the actinobacteria, it's not fully elucidated if it's um, endotoxins, exotoxins, or um, the actual actinobacteria itself. And actinobacteria is actually quite a big family of bacteria. Actinomyces are actually a, um, a genus under that. So it's basically bacterial. Can you I know, ask bacterial you guys toxins. a question? This is just a curiosity question. Like I feel like a little kid pulling on your shirts, but I have a question. How are they saying that mycotoxins are less than 7% of SIRS? when mycotoxins inside of a home cannot be adequately assessed for and none of shoemakers tests are showing anything about mycotoxins so i'm i'm confused shoemakers looking at the transcriptome which is the messenger rna of patients and he's basically seeing what what targets so looking at the rna and, and going back to the literature seeing what pathogens target those sections of rna um so he's says they're ribotoxins so they target the ribosome which is the manufacturing power you know they manufacture the proteins in a cell so he's saying um ribotoxins related to actinobacteria um correlate in patients but he's not and he and also he's just come up with a actinobacteria index for the home which looks at um actinobacteria there's group one and group two it's kind of like a, a, a sort of a mimic of the ermi group one are pathogenic or human actinobacteria group two are soil based actinobacteria so you know it's pretty gray at the moment um you know because he's traditionally used the ermi and hurts me which is obviously uh, fungal-based. So he's trying to marry that, marry the new genie test with this new actinobacteria test, but I don't think there's anything published that's, that's quite solid that, sh that shows the connection as yet. I see that uh, Lucy Wicks has resumed much of her former duties and is going in and out of buildings and interacting in a much more normal way. How is she doing these days? I actually couldn't tell you. Um, she seems to have been pretty quiet on the issue since the biotoxin inquiry. Um, I don't know if Caleb said anything more. She was, yeah, I think she's, um, she seems to be, yeah, resumed duties. Apparently she was carrying an air oasis unit with her um, in, into different parliamentary rooms for a while. So I'm not sure if she's still doing that. Publicly, um, I, I don't think we've had an update, but just from her parliamentary and work, she seems to be, you know, full-time working. Well, uh, I corresponded with Lucy Wicks prior to the Australian Parliamentary Inquiry, and she invited me to submit my testimony, which is the story basically in Mold Warriors and Surviving Mold, of actually having started the chronic fatigue syndrome for the purpose of getting research into the toxic mold, which we found to be Stachybotrys charterum. And I did submit my testimony, and their secretaries and the um, members of the committee saw it, and yet there was no mention that they were aware of um, the connection between toxic mold and chronic fatigue syndrome, even though this is clearly outlined in Shoemaker's books. Do you have any comment on that? Your submission wasn't, isn't on the official submissions page, so I'm not sure what happened there. Interesting, because I received a receipt personally from the uh, secretary of the committee, so mm. somehow that must have gotten set aside. But anyway, as you know, my um, goal in volunteering to become a prototype for the original Holmes 1988 chronic fatigue syndrome was so that we wouldn't have these years of delay in studying these matters. And uh, I realize now that they say that they've redefined chronic fatigue syndrome and it's moved on since then, but they haven't really addressed the fact that the original syndrome was actually directly based on toxic mold and can't be set aside without clearing up this confusion. Do you anticipate in the future that they'll revisit these matters? I think it will. It's just the way, I guess, we see it playing out is it's going to be the reverse of the way that you would like. So it definitely was an oversight that we had. Um, you know, those early studies on that were never followed up. Um, I know there's been reports 
uh, from a number of researchers during that sort of period where it was just seemed like any funding on this was blocked, like no, people just couldn't get grants, they couldn't follow it up at all. And it got left in the dust and then people were instead pursuing the whole sort of post-viral syndrome, if you like, uh, the virus aspect. So it was an oversight, it wasn't, it wasn't handled well, and it's been far too long, obviously, and, and we're all aware of that, like it's, it's, you know, we've had obviously something like 36 years since CFS was coined or the like, and really 50 years of sick buildings and it's a disgrace that this is, hasn't been better addressed, obviously. I think for us, the difference, it's not that we disagree about the dangers of mold in general or, or, or stachybotrys in, you know, specifically, it's more the way it's played out in Australia has been that rather than MECFS being linked to toxic mold here, it has been this biotoxin inquiry, and this is the language they're using instead, this biotoxin and SERS-like syndrome. So we have to sort of go along that path as well and take that in good faith for now. And uh, it does mean, sort of as I was saying before, that it's, it's more likely to be a reverse situation where we recognise something like a SERS-like syndrome, and then perhaps increasingly a number of people with MECFS realise that uh, their illness is, is being driven by dampness and mould. And that does mean that the original name that was coined for this is, is potentially um, not the one that's eventually connected with toxic mould, even though it should have been. Well, there was a separate uh, Australian parliamentary inquiry into MECFS. Yep. And um, I noticed that they didn't look into the history of either myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome. And uh, it's not just Australia, researchers all the way around the world are kind of playing the same game, like the ones at Stanford. They're talking about redefining MECFS. And I'm not sure how that's gonna be possible because myalgic encephalomyelitis was coined by uh, Atchison and Ramsey back in 1955 for the Royal Free Hospital outbreak, which had a very specific data set but no mention of sick building syndrome or mold whatsoever. And chronic fatigue syndrome was based directly on the 1985 Lake Tahoe mystery illness outbreak in which all the clusters were in sick buildings and we did document stachybotrys. So we've got a disparity of data sets that means you can't really combine MECFS and any attempt to redefine it and move on would be a, in defiance of science. It would be trying to subvert the evidence that we'd long had. I mean, the, so the Biotoxin Advisory Committee is, they, they're doing a review, um, like outsourcing it to a third party. So the terms of reference, references, conduct a review into the treatment of patients presenting with complex illnesses that are difficult to diagnose, including biotoxin-related illnesses and those with SERS-like conditions and develop clinical guidelines for GPs for the diagnosis, treatment, and management of SERS-like conditions in consultation with patient groups, medical practitioners, and health bodies. So, I mean, SERS-like conditions and um, complex illnesses that are difficult to diagnose, surely that will, uh, MECFS will be um, one of those. I'm not sure how far they're going to go down that um, research path. I think we can see already what they're planning to do. It's going to be a replay of the 2015 Institute of Medicine attempt to redefine MECFS to the total exclusion of the original outbreaks that both ME and CFS were based on. What has Dr. Shoemaker said about CFS, now CFS and SERS? What, you said that he's trying to... Yeah, it's a really interesting situation. You know, he flew me out to the 2019 Fort Lauderdale, Florida Mold Congress to speak about mold at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome. So I anticipated at that time that all the shoemaker doctors would be on board with proceeding with establishing this direct connection. And then we could clear up some of this confusion, kind of figure out what differences or similarities there are between his entity of SERS and chronic fatigue syndrome. And yet I guess the uh, genie testing negated his proposed connection of SERS and chronic fatigue syndrome because he kind of backed away from attempting to connect it with chronic fatigue syndrome and actually wrote in the art and science of SERS that this should be kept as a separate entity. And uh, that's a bit confusing because for nearly 20 years, he was working towards creating a, a connection between the two. 
And now Dr. McMahon and Dr. Shoemaker are saying it should be kept separate, which is, is fine. But as long as we go back and establish what chronic fatigue syndrome is and what SIRS is, so that we can find out why they should be separated now. It's hard to know Shoemaker's motivations without actually sort of talking to him about it. I guess there's no doubt that, I don't know. I, I think I can uh, explain that actually. And you can yeah. uh, get clues from Cheryl Harding's work because in 2015, right. She ran into the situation where stachybotrys that had been stripped of its mycotoxins still elicited damaging response, a pulmonary yes. hemorrhage, in fact. So yes. this was the first really clear evidence we had that the structure of stachybotrys, even without the toxins, is still capable of causing this kind of damage. And uh, I told Dr. Shoemaker that even though his uh, focus on mycotoxins may have been subtracted, by the genie testing, that this pathological response to the structure itself indicates that we should continue looking into stachybotrys because there's clearly some kind of pathology involved. Yeah, look, and I think there's going to be ongoing research with that. Cheryl Harding's team has uh, continued to focus on stachybotrys, obviously, with more recent um, circumstances. I think, I think we've sort of been trying to say here is that um, this is one researcher who's doing it. And I think as shoemakers seem who are focusing sort of elsewhere around this, it's not the whole, it's not every researcher who's doing that. Um, more than this, it's hard to know the entirety of the politics around the situation when it seems as if governments don't wish to fund research into this, which means that perhaps the research naturally leads in MECFS towards uh, more viral syndromes or viral elements being investigated instead of the, the fungal elements, for example. So I'm not saying it's ideal, and I'm not saying it's, um, they've done it right. Uh, it's more saying, I guess here in Australia, we're rolling with, with how it has played out and sort of acting in good faith for now with the government in terms of what they've done and, and how they've structured the language. So I, I, I do take your point. I just think it's a, a difficult situation given not everyone's being about bored about it all. And I think I hear what you're saying is you kind of recognize Eric's point, but that's what you have to work with right now to move forward. And you haven't really that's been exactly. set up with the best thing <laughs> to work with that's to good. move forward. And maybe and if you had some other researchers who had other da data, maybe yes. there would be other projects that you could move forward with in a way that, but you also yeah. acknowledge that this could potentially lead mold injured people towards a CIRS diagnosis, which the way this is going legally by their definitions and by their testing could be water damage illness from not mold, but endotoxins. And that could really hurt people's legal cases. This could be a whole shift. This could be a whole shift for like legal, avoiding legal reparation. And you guys could be kind of walking into a trap voluntarily. I, I hate to say it, but when you look at the bigger picture, you have to look at how all the octopus arms are connected to the octopus. I, I think also we need really good building studies because is actinobacteria found without mold? So, you know, will there ever be a case where the, the, the Hertzmeyer-Ermey is, is lot, you know, fine, perfect, but the actinobacteria index is high? Or do they always, I mean, both of them like similar conditions, you know, damp, moisture, same sort of temperatures. So I would imagine that where there is one, there's usually the other. So, and still, even if he's doing the genie testing, I mean, that's, you know, it's still um, a subclass, uh, like a phenotype of SIRS would still be mycotoxin related. So 1985 in Lake Tahoe, you know, that could have been all, you know, stachybotrys related. 36 years later, maybe there's, you know, maybe the fungal and bacterial ecology of environments have changed. But even back then, it could have still been that 8%. You know, uh, Eric could have still been that 8% mycotoxin phenotype of SIRS. Legally, yeah, I mean, we just haven't had really any good research in Australia on, the, on this matter at all. Like it's, it's just all, all been on not, asthma. We're not necessarily attached to like pegging mycotoxins down on this where Eric has to like prove that it's mycotoxins. It's just that something really specific happened in Lake Tahoe. And when 
the factors present weren't researched, we can't look at what effects that might have been that could be affecting the environment in an overarching way. Right, Eric? For me, I'd step back and say, my goal here is regardless of the specifics of whether it's, you know, stachybotrys, mycotoxins, endotoxins, or anything, when we look at that general causation of have we got uh, people in sick buildings, have we got people in water damaged buildings, genuinely, incredibly, ridiculously ill from dampness and mold, that general title, right? For now, I think that's enough. Like, obviously, we want, we want to go forward with the research. We want to actually find out exactly what's going on there, right? But for now, we've got enough evidence just for that general banner, dampness and mold, the elements we find in water damaged buildings. What we want to do is just push that forward because the evidence is strong enough that if we can make that link and we can get the literature review and the sort of biotoxin illness advisory committee that's actually going to be reviewing this over the next 12 months, um, that would actually be giving a better chance of getting some recognition and helping people with their legal cases. So it's sort of a pushback and disagree a little and say, we just need that general causation to be, to be recognized now to actually help with legal cases because people here have the same problem as in the States where um, it's very difficult, very difficult to get uh, insurance claims. I don't think we've even heard of a single workers' compensation claim that's been won in this country. It's, it's not great, obviously. The defense expert witnesses are already so aggressively attacking the CIRS claims. We spoke with a fungal mm. geneticist yesterday who was calling the HLA genes quack science because there's multiple genes that are going to be expressed when someone's living in poison and no genetic profile that would be expected to endure it in a healthy manner and so i'm yes. i'm just letting you know what we see that you know from yeah. the legal side i already see people kind of gearing up to attack this to make it sound like not only is it quack science not only is it not mold it's not even genetic I mean, the HLA link was, was one peer-reviewed conference paper. Um, it, it shows a stronger association. You know, if you have those sort of HLA genes, you're in that 24% of the population. It's something like you're 3.7 times more likely, which isn't to say that other people can't get sick. And no one's followed up with that at all. So it's very easy to, to push back on that. And we wouldn't even disagree with you there. Um, this harks back to some of the earlier points here saying, yeah, I'm um, SERS as a syndrome to you know, identify, diagnose, and treat such individuals is far weaker in terms of the evidence um, because it does primarily come from that one team. And that one team, some of their studies are quite small. Some of their studies are published in questionable journals, quite frankly. But we still have this problem where we've got that broader body of evidence that says dampness and mold cause innate immune activation, cause sick people. We still need some way to basically identify diagnose and treat those people so we have to sort of move forward uh, from that general causation to getting something in place so there's no doubt no doubt there's, there's quack science or problematic science anyway um, but if we get that gender that first step in place of, of recognizing yes people are getting sick in sick buildings which should have been done a very long time ago then we start to get the ball rolling on that further research to actually identify diagnose and treat wherever that leads and we come back to the idea, idea of like a SERS-like syndrome or a CFS-like syndrome, whatever that is, whatever the, whatever the best diagnostics are, whatever the best uh, biomarkers are to identify them and whatever we end up with the best treatment regime for those individuals too. It's more the way uh, it's played out in this country and in terms of, the, you know, the way we're sort of rolling with, the ball, with, with uh, uh, what's actually happened with this government and inquiry and the like. It's going to be very interesting because Dr. Shoemaker has done such a good job of publicizing my story of mold at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome that people are going to read it and they're going to see that there was evidence, documented evidence, that stachybotrys was the actual first clue in this syndrome. So to move on and proceed as if this matter can never be settled uh, indicates a, a loss, a breakdown in the methods of science. And I think more and more people are going to be questioning that. And as both Harvard and the Institute of Medicine and uh, the Open Medicine Foundation, Dr. Ron Davis's uh, group, and all the other uh, organizations are attempting to say, well, we will never be able to solve chronic fatigue syndrome. We'll have a growing number of people going, wait a minute, this was never in doubt. We knew about this all along. 
So yeah. uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how the, uh, the Australian parliament is going to handle this situation when if they depend on Dr. Shoemaker's books, they cannot help but study over the story that toxic mold actually started this controversial syndrome. I think we'll have to see how the Biotoxin Illness Advisory Committee plays out and see, because once we do that complete literature review around that, it's going to encompass all of those studies. We'll just have to see. Ah, uh, studies. You know, Caleb's going to be part of that committee. Um, Dr. Sandy Gupta is going to be part of that committee. We don't really have a handle on the other eight members of that committee now or how they're going to respond to the evidence. So, you know, we're going to have to actually see how they respond to that evidence and then start to actually... You move on that basis, I guess I'm saying. The requirement of the National uh, Institute of Health, the NIH, when they mm. put down a directive to the Institute of Medicine to redefine MECFS is they rely only on peer-reviewed literature and nothing else. Well, of yeah. course, when you create a syndrome, there's no peer-reviewed literature. That's the reason for creating it, because there is none yet. So by doing this, they were guaranteeing that there would be only aftermarket opinions and distortions and redefinitions and no actual evidence or epidemiology into the original incident or evidence that were under consideration by the Holmes Committee. So I can see already that this is their plan. That by redefining whatever it is, whether it's SIRS or MECFS or any name they'd come up with, what they're planning on doing is wiping out evidence of the past so they'll have a clean slate so they can not only absolve themselves while their malfeasance of the past but act like whatever they're discovering now is new and discovered by them. Fascinating. Whereas I'm thinking that the patients who see that there's a long track record of uh, evidence for both mold illness that precedes the chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak are going yes. to look at this and go, what the heck are you guys doing? Yeah. Now the uh, um, evidence by Cheryl Harding about the particulates, the uh, organic structure of stachybotrys denuded of the mycotoxins still causes a pathogenic response. Now, it would be very nice to move forward and say, well, all that old evidence doesn't matter anymore, except what's going to happen when patients find out that the Soviets actually discovered this in 1948? Stachybotry toxicosis or another incident? No, they not only discovered toxicosis, but by attempting to turn it into a biological warfare agent, they isolated, they purified the toxins by separating it from the structure and found that without the associated structure, it lacked the full effect. So they knew back in 1948 that there was something about the structure of Sacubotrys itself that was required to be inhaled to get the pulmonary hemorrhage. Um, look, I think we're all on the same side in just trying to get patients to be treated properly by the medical community and, and to get a, a proper treatment and for this uh, incredibly awful situation to end, right? And there's no doubt that games have been played around the science. We absolutely agree. Um, and we, we still don't know the full extent of that. I always agree with the general thing about what you're saying in terms of, yeah, why was this overlooked? Why was this missed? Why was Stachybotrys not more focused on in the past? I, I never disagree about that, and I'm never going to play down mold at ground zero, and I'm also never going to play down um, your role in helping people when the medical community weren't helping anyone, right? The only part I, I, I do disagree on is, is simply the current tactics of where we're at and where we have to play this in our country right now, right? Yeah. So you're saying we should have gone back to mold at ground zero and we should have followed that up, and we never did. And yeah, absolutely, we should have done that. That's not how it's playing out. We've got a whole bunch of researchers who've got in their head that, that MECFS is something different, that they're, they're following a different lead. And the bulk of the literature, because of that history, is now in that other direction, away from toxic mold, away from that fungal lead. So they're following that, um, which means that the people who probably figure this out are going to be outsiders and the like. Yeah. Um, and so well, Keely mentioned that you might be falling into a trap is yes. where this Cheryl Harding evidence with the particulates actually being more responsible for the pathogenesis and the mycotoxin, that means that as they move into studying genetic effects of mycotoxins, they're moving away from finding out that really this is where the pathology is driven. Oh, so, um, sorry, can you spell that out a little? Yeah, the, uh, Cheryl Harding pointed out the stachybotrys skeletons. Yes. The, the structure itself that was... Yeah put in solvents so the mycotoxins were taken away 
are actually yeah. capable of causing the greater portion of the pathogenesis. So by moving into mycotoxins, they might be actually leading you into a trap of saying, well, this is the pathology we associate with mycotoxins, but we don't see any of this other stuff. Whereas actually in the old evidence, this goes back to, like I say, the 1940s. Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree that you have to move forward with what you've got, but at the same time, we are dealing with some really sneaky, tricky people where they see yeah. an advantage of, of leading you astray and delaying yeah. science. They can string you out for years and years and years, whereas I know Absolutely. you have to go ahead and proceed with the peer-reviewed literature, and that's great, and I suggest that you do so. But at the same time, at Exposing Mold, we're going to tell the original story the original yeah. evidence and lay it out to the patients so they can make up their own minds as to how science is being handled. <laughs> uh, you know, I think we've all got strong opinions on how science is being handled just from the past 18 I, months of this pandemic. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> there hasn't been enough um, studies into particulate, like fungal particles. Reponin from 2007, fungal fragments in moldy houses, a field study in homes in New Orleans and Southern Ohio. That was a good one that showed that uh, exposure might be 500 times higher when fragments are included. Although they were basically still saying that the fragments hold the mycotoxins. Um, so there's probably, yeah, I, not that many peer review that show effects of, of fungal fragments without mycotoxins because they usually go together. And then David Strauss demonstrated that unless you purify vast quantities of air by concentrating the mycotoxins from it, it's below the level of detection. So here's another way they can say, well, we're going to rely on peer-reviewed literature, but by failing to attach importance to the one study that shows that there's something wrong with their theory, they can put off research into it. Yeah. So I guess I'd say the feedback I have from, from my friends who are medical doctors in this country is that when they hear about SIRS, they think it's too broad a syndrome, right? It hasn't been drilled down into enough, right? To actually sort yeah. of, uh, to elicit, uh, sub, sub, subgroups within that patient community. Um, and that's probably going to be the case that so we've sort of got uh, in, in a water damaged building, you're going to have potentially unique exposures, meeting unique genetics leading to clusters of pathologies that we haven't identified. We even see that in general with you know, the, these, even the biomarkers that are involved with that, you know, some people will present with, say, low vascular endothelial growth factor, and others will present with normal vascular endothelial growth factors, and others will present with high vascular endothelial growth factor. So why are we seeing these sort of discrepancies here? These, are these patients all supposed to be in the same group? So, yeah, I take your point that we could be led down, a, um, led down the garden path in, in another direction It could delay time. For us, our focus is being, well, yeah, that's true. And we'll probably going forward, we might have to separate out, okay, you know, we've got a group here who is stachybotrys. Perhaps we do have a group over here who are endotoxins. Perhaps we've got another group or whatever, right? But we come back to, we just come back to the definitions that were the World Health Organization set out, that others have set out, this general banner that I sort of would like to keep banging on about, that dampness and mold banner of general, and that general causation of where the evidence is at. Can we say people in water damaged buildings exposed to dampness and mold have innate immune activation? Are they genuinely getting sick? Just making that link right now um, and keeping it to that link and where that's where the, the bulk of the evidence lies. That's where if you look at this entire, you know, 500 studies around this, the, the, that's the strongest part of the evidence, that general causation right now. If we can just get that, suddenly we start to actually be able to get people making successful claims. No, they might not have specifically proven their endotoxins or stachybotrys or whatever, but they're just generally proving, yes, I'm sick from a water damaged building, right? And from there, we also start getting research dollars and the like to actually sort of figure the rest of this mystery out. Yeah, you know, as a um, original prototype for chronic fatigue syndrome, I am duty bound. I'm obligated. It's my job. It's my responsibility to tell the truth about the evidence and the circumstances for that caused the creation of this syndrome. And Dr. Shoemaker said, examine the methods. Always look at the methods. Don't just accept the conclusions. Look through the, the means by which researchers arrived at their conclusions. In order to properly study chronic fatigue syndrome, one would have to obviously look at what this syndrome was based on. The actual people, the circumstances, the buildings, they would have to do that, not just rely on the definition. So 
on that basis, because no researchers ever came back and looked in the sick buildings and found the toxic mold, I can say that as far as the peer-reviewed literature goes, every single study on chronic fatigue syndrome fails the test of science. Every single one. Look, in science in the ideal world, you're right. Um, I've already said it. It should have been followed up on. It's, it's just we don't live in an ideal world. So, um, and, you know, I, I, I respect the approach you're taking. Um, I really do. And I think given your circumstances, you should keep pushing in the direction you're pushing. I also just think it's one of these situations where different teams should push in the direction where, where the best leads work for them. And for us here in Australia, the, you know, we would get nowhere banging the drum on MBCFS and mold right now. So we're pushing in the direction where, where, there, is, um, where there is some hope of making progress. And that is, that is down the sort of biotoxin inquiry, the SERS-related um, illnesses and the like. I, I don't disagree with you. It's more, it's just a matter of um, the best tactics for us right now. Have you reached out to uh, Professor Donald Staines and Sonia Marshall Gradisnik at Griffith University? I haven't actually. Uh, what's their research? Uh, Dr. Gupta did, um, but yeah. Oh, they're doing some fabulous work on natural killer cell function and the uh, TRPM transient receptor potential melastatin 3 anomaly, ion channel anomaly in MECFS. And they are actually working with Dr. Peterson of Incline Village, the original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort. So yes. this has the potential to establish a direct immune abnormality between the original cohort and what they're seeing in Australia. Yes. Yeah. It's really exciting research. Well, it is. Natural killer cell dysfunction in mold exposure. Here's a possible avenue of putting the pieces of the puzzle together. I mean, following their work, I was actually... Uh... Uh, participant from 2013 to 2016. They actually developed microRNA biomarker panel for MECFS, but they've kind of ditched it for the calcium ion channel um, theory. From what I can tell, the, the problem goes down to the immune dysfunction is so far buried in some kind of really fundamental process that all we are seeing are the downstream effects. It's really impossible to create a good syndrome definition when basic immune dysfunction can be manifested by whatever secondary infections or opportunistic viruses happen to come along. And this is exactly what happened when the original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort, Dr. Holmes realized that the signs and symptoms were all over the map. And yes, he saw signs of immune dysfunction. So the basic directive of the original Holmes definition was not so much to treat the definition as the be-all of what this illness is. In fact, it instructs doctors, don't do this. Do not consider this loose outline to be what the syndrome is. The patients must be eval evaluated, and this is only a rational basis for further investigation. And of course, to me, a rational basis would mean look deeper into the illness of the actual study subjects upon which this syndrome was based. And this was never done. So science really fell down on the job. And all they're working now to do is cover up for all the years of confusion that they really deliberately created. I just so, want to say that um, Sean and myself are working on our own sort of literature review um, called the Biotoxin Research Database, which um, you can include with the show notes or um, the YouTube. Um, so it's going to be like, uh, studies showing a link, mainly multi-system studies. Basically, we want to get sort of the, the non-allergy, non-infection studies, which is like the um, what the mainstream medicine only sees as mould uh, affecting the moment. So non-allergy, particularly multi-system illnesses. Um, so positive studies and also negative studies. So the naysayer studies, so, and, and then sort of commenting on, on those studies and any... Um, conflicts of interest and things like that. Okay, well, I would advise you as you proceed in watching these committees uh, develop their new definitions to look at the methods and see if what they are defining has any relationship to ME or CFS or SERS or anything in the past, because they are probably trying to delay looking into certain aspects of both SERS and ME-CFS for as long as possible. We're aware of the games, you know, even just from you and others uh, that have been played in the US around this issue for a very long time. And, and very recently, of course, Tamara Tuminen published a paper 
about the games that are being played around this issue in Finland. So it's, it's happening elsewhere as well. And, and other researchers like Cheryl Harding said, it's not just those two countries, it's elsewhere um, too. Here in Australia, yeah, um, we were a little fortunate. Well, Lucy Wicks was unfortunate, but we were a little fortunate that a tree fell on our roof and this whole biotoxin inquiry came about and gave us um, this opportunity. So for now, the Biotoxin Illness Advisory Committee, yes, we haven't had the first meeting hasn't happened yet that's going to happen um is it next week caleb tuesday tuesday there you go um and we have to really see and reevaluate at that point based on the feedback that caleb and, and dr sandy cook to bring back as to you know how is this happening is this being done in good faith is it being done in, in not so good faith how what are, what are the people in the room like and make decisions at that point you might be right but we're sort of I feel like we're in a little bit of a holding pattern until we know more about this committee and how it's going to actually play out and whether it's a viable pathway forward or not. Um, we have to, for the moment, take it on good faith that they are at least going through the motions um, of, of doing this. We don't know. I appreciate that. you got to play the game. Yeah. So. We did that with the uh, original chronic fatigue syndrome cluster. When we saw that the CDC and NIH were playing games with this, we kind of sat back and allowed things to happen, hoping that good researchers would come along later and clear everything up. Yes. And we've wound up with a serious shortage of good researchers. You know, MECFS community is every week there's a new biomarker that comes out, but nothing ever sticks. So hopefully, with 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 you know with mold and dampness and so as we can actually uh, with this funding, th this funding. So the pandas will be looking at HLA. Um, genes, if they if they get the the grant, um, but also other other genes as well. As much as Shoemaker has been pushing for 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 SIRS, I think the point we're making is that the dampness and mold causing innate immune activation. That's actually not Shoemaker's angle. That's actually more what Cheryl Harding was saying in hers. That she was saying, right, we have these three existing accepted categories of how dampness and mold can cause illness, which is allergy, infectional colonization, and, and toxicity. And her paper was explicitly arguing, no, we need a fourth category that is innate immune activation, and that's where the bulk of the evidence lies. So I guess it looks for us like, okay, we're using the name SIRS, and we're, and we're sort of um, going along that, but we do recognize the weaknesses in that. And right now it's, it's more actually really pushing along Cheryl Harding's lines, because that's where we think the, the strength of the evidence lies, that we push for this fourth category to be broadly recognized by the medical profession around innate immune activation. Yeah, you um, might want to revert possibly to mold illness, just generic mold illness, because if you look back in the literature, in the 1994 Saratoga Springs Proceedings Manual, the yes. uh, information about the innate immune activation was actually generated in the early 1990s by Bill Sorensen. I don't know that story. Um, no, uh, we're, we've always sort of said SIRS slash mold illness in, in a lot of our literature. Yeah. And I think the patients, for the most part, are very happy to generally just say mold illness too. Um, and we'll sort of let that play out. Obviously, that runs into problems later on, um, depending on how Shoemaker's research plays out. I wouldn't throw out SIRS as a name either, because if Shoemaker turns out to be um, pushing in the right direction, then SIRS is a name that works regardless of whether it turns out to be predominantly mycotoxins or predominantly endotoxins or something else along those lines. So we use both names. We're happy to use both names. People can um, <laughs> put whatever name they want on it. Tamara Tuminen decided she was going to go her own way with a, with a name in sort of um, Scandinavian countries of DMHS, dampness and mold hypersensitivity syndrome. So long as the we pool this research together, all of it together, regardless of the name, that points to the general phenomenon here. Well, that's what we need to do is put all the information together. Yeah. Look back and not discount old studies just because they were done a long time ago. And, and the, diff the situation here as well, I'd say, is like I know, for example, from individuals like Sharon Kramer, that um, even the doctors in the, in the state, some of their medical textbooks had literally sort of the studies that have been completely discredited about this topic 
the CDC indirectly funded um, organizations to put some of those studies into the textbook. So they've been actively taught that the levels of mold and mycotoxins in a water damaged building can't possibly be high enough to cause illness, which has been discredited so many times as a bad joke. So that means there's an active bias uh, with a lot of US doctors. That's not really so much the situation here. The situation here is simply that most Australian doctors were never trained at this at all. Uh, they weren't actively taught the wrong thing. It's more that they just viewed it as some kind of superstition or the like. And when they actually start to realise there is a larger body of literature here than they, than they realise, then they start to actually change their minds about it. That's not to say that there probably wasn't some level of... Um, you know, negligence or whatever you want to call it, regulatory capture or something like that at the government level. But certainly that's not as well documented here as in the United States with the games, the sort of ongoing patterns of irregularities that, that uh, seem to pervade how organisations like the CDC have treated this for 20 or 30 years now. So no, well, we're not fighting quite so much against an existing, a pre-existing bias here so much as just educating people, hey, there's a giant body of literature here. Why don't you take a look at this and see what you think, if you like? I have a serious advantage here because being the subject of a syndrome, my circumstances and my illness is not dependent on peer-reviewed literature. In fact, uh, you cannot demand peer-reviewed literature because there wouldn't be any. That's why the syndrome was created. So no. the offer I made to the Shoemaker group and to yes. groups around the world is if you want to use this as leverage, to force the issue to say that you have to look at this because it was documented, that offer's still on the table. I think there's an element where those systemic issues in science we're seeing, where individuals such as yourself went to uh, incredibly great length to be so systematic about this and, and put it on a platter for doctors and say, look, I, I isolated Stachybotrys, I went out to a, you know, somewhere like a desert, showed how close I could get to this and, and have symptoms, and others have followed in your footsteps. Um, you know, Julie Raymeyer in her book obviously conducted her own very small, double-blind, randomized controlled trial. Uh, Jen Bray's documentary um, on MECFS, you know, she talks about using mold avoidance and, and actually sort of going from basically being bed-bound to sort of running around in the desert and the like. So individuals are showing it. And there's a lack of a link there to from these patients to what eventually gets funded and put into research. And even if we looked at COVID, for example, we seem to see it's beyond even that, that even if you're a frontline doctor, you can't even get attention for funding or research or get regulatory agencies to actually follow up on, on what you're actually doing. And so it's incredibly problematic. The problems are sort of it's bigger than any of us. Incredibly, incredibly problematic. However, yes. by chance, by uh, an amazing stroke of fortune, I was associated with the original chronic fatigue syndrome cluster. I mean, the first one, the very one that Gary Holmes was called for. And in that cluster, in that room, in that school, we found the toxic mold, and it was found by professional remediators. So yeah. this elevates this evidence beyond that of a mere anecdotal story by an individual patient. True. And it's I can take this, and it's really fantastic because I can go to Stanford, I can go to Harvard, and I can say yeah. this, and I go, you really don't have the right to walk away from this evidence because it was documented, it's circumstantial, and this was responsible for the creation of the syndrome. And of course, they try to run for me, but I don't know how fast they can run, but I can run pretty fast too. <laughs> oh, look, uh, no, I'll always agree that um, what happened here was, was not what should have happened in the, in the due course of science. Um, and I can't, I can't imagine your frustration given it has been 36 years. It has been a long time, but now we've got Arnold Mann on the job. I mean, yeah, the very... I heard, journalist, I heard your interview with him. Yeah, he, he unleashed toxic mold to the world. So this is the guy that made it famous. And he's interested in unveiling how the, huh, the chronic fatigue syndrome debacle was handled. I think there's, you know, I've, um, I've collected a lot of notes on this. This is something I occasionally sort of uh, put sort of well-referenced blogs and things on, on the Toxic Mold Support Australia website and like... Um, and this is one that's uh, been on my radar that I have a lot of notes for. Uh, you know, there's two, two separate stories there, whether the, yeah, the pulmonary hemorrhage and the infants, that whole story that happened in Cleveland and the way the CDC didn't follow up on that. And of course, uh, the ACOM story and the like and how that wasn't followed up on by authorities as well. <laughs> as, as researchers proceed, I think we need to make it clear to them that history is going to be their judge. Yes. Uh, this, it seems to be just that even when you get scientists doing 
credible studies and actually doing good science, that it's still at the whim of the regulatory agencies to actually decide whether they're going to pay attention to that science or not. And there's a transparency issue there that we really have to deal with. Um, so it just seems, for example, when we watch from over here how the US is dealing with COVID, it seems that um, any patented drugs for the use of early treatment of COVID-19 will typically have, say, one or two medium-sized studies, and suddenly they'll get approved for use, even if they show relatively low efficacy. So the example there would be a drug like uh, remdesivir. Uh, and then if we have drugs that, and I'm, I'm not sure if they work, but certainly they have, there are drugs like ivermectin that have been discussed a lot recently, and they'll have 60 peer-reviewed studies that seem to show higher efficacy. And no, they're not perfect studies, but it just gets completely freaking ignored. And um, I know that there's a double standard there in terms of this seems to be the pattern now for about five different patented drugs versus about five different generic drugs that are the same pattern we see over and over again. So it comes back to, okay, we're not going to get anywhere. Even if we get good scientists doing good research in this space, we still need to actually address the elephant in the room. And that elephant is, okay, we probably have an element of regulatory capture in our agencies. What do we do about that? Because we can put great science on the table and they can say whatever we're going to ignore you that's that's been something on my radar as well how do we how do we address that how do we create transparency in our democracy that should be there and really isn't there right now okay well if there's anything i can do to support your efforts in australia let me know <laughs> yeah thank you very uh, much eric we are definitely willing to help in any way, shape, or form. Actually, Keely might be really good to talk to about some case studies. So, you know, maybe you guys can connect post uh, Zoom recording. Yeah, Thanks. that'd be great. Thank you for the time. Um, I think we're all on the same side. I think we're, we're always going to um, spar a little about the best way forward. <laughs> That's okay. Um, and I think everyone should push in the way that they feel best for anyone. Get it. And I think the situation is different, perhaps, on a country-by-country -country basis. You know, we'll see what happens with this Biotoxin Illness Committee and, and whether that makes progress or not. And if not, we'll reevaluate, I guess. But um, it'd be All good right. to keep in touch. And thank you yeah, for today. We shall see. Great talking okay. to you. Thank you. Good. You too. Yeah, these, these researchers, you really have to be firm with them, I tell you. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We had Caleb and Sean from Australia. They have a toxic mold group where they're helping people with serous diagnoses and mold-injured um, individuals as well. And they have a lot of information on their site. And the Australian government looks like they're actually putting money into funding some studies. So we look forward to seeing what they do there. And maybe we can bring that over to the United States. Who knows? Again, we will keep that on our radar. Thank you again. Please like, share, comment in our content. Also check out our GoFundMe and Patreon pages. Those of you that pledge to be one of our Patreon members, we have a lot of special content coming up just for you. So feel free to check that out and see if you would like to become a part of that. So thank you again. We'll see you next time.